Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, I Am Because We Are, Communalism in African Ethics and Politics. I think, therefore, I am. This is one of the most famous phrases in the history of philosophy, famously crafted by the French philosopher René Descartes. Aside from its impact as an idea concerning how we may know we exist on subsequent discussions of the nature of knowledge, it has also inspired t-shirts, mugs, and the pun, I drink, therefore I am, used by everyone from Monty Python to the philosopher Roger Scruton, who made it the title of his guidebook to wine. Perhaps because it can be thought of as a kind of twist on Descartes' phrase, there's another phrase that appears in John Mbiti's book, African Religions and Philosophy, that has been widely quoted and often treated as the best way to summarize a major theme in African thought. I am because we are. You'll remember this book of Mbiti's from our discussion of time. It was here that he put forward his notorious claim that traditional African societies think of time almost solely in terms of past and present. Mbiti also argues that, for traditional Africans, it is only through understanding one's place within a community that one understands one's own being and the duties and privileges that come along with existing. One does not suffer or rejoice alone, but rather suffers and rejoices communally. As he puts it, whatever happens to the individual happens to the whole group, and whatever happens to the whole group happens to the individual. The individual can only say, I am because we are, and since we are, therefore I am. What justifies this claim? Why should we think MBT is right that the individual can only be understood as part of a larger communal whole in traditional African thought? He draws our attention to the significance of rituals of incorporation, such as those that mark the transition of a child to the duties of adulthood. According to MBT, These are signs that it is the community that, in an important sense, creates the individual. Physical birth is not enough. Rituals of incorporation mark the integration of a child into a society, and various other rituals mark transitions from one stage of corporate existence to another, such as marriage rites. Even death is seen as a transition to another community status. The person is now incorporated into the wider communal structure that includes not only the living, but also the remembered dead. We saw in the last episode how significant these departed members of the community remain. They may make their dissatisfaction known, if they are not honored properly, and in some groups there is the possibility of communicating with the ancestors through spirit possession. The Nigerian philosopher Ifyanyi Menkiti has reflected on Mbiti's encapsulation of African communalism in the phrase, I am because we are, in a way that draws out its striking philosophical implications. Menkiti argues that, on the communalist understanding common to traditional African societies, it is not the case that having a will, or being rational, or having memories is enough to identify one as a person. Personhood is rather an achievement that is attained through certain forms of participation within a community. This also means that personhood is something that one can fail to achieve, and something that one might be better or worse at achieving. Personhood is therefore a condition that is not universally shared among adult humans, and it is a condition that admits of degrees. 
One of the major ways in which we can witness belief in differing degrees of personhood, Mankiti tells us, is through the recognition of elders as being more persons than those who are younger. As with Mbiti, rituals constitute key evidence for Mankiti's interpretation of the traditional view. He points out that anthropologists have noted the relative lack of ritualized grief when a small child dies as compared with increasingly elaborate forms of ritualized grief, depending on how much older the person who died was. He also notes the significance of linguistic expressions, including one taken from that foundational text of ethno-philosophy, Placid Temples' Bantu philosophy. The Baluba, according to Temples, differentiate between the levels of force they will attribute to a Muntu, a term often translated as human being, and note that the word Bantu itself can be understood as the plural form of Muntu, and thus as simply meaning humans. But in addition to this, the Baluba will also say of someone who does not behave properly, Ke Muntu Po, or this is not a Muntu. Clearly, the point is not to correct the fact that people have been mistaking a non-human animal for a human, say, taking a giraffe named Hiawatha to be a particularly tall woman in a spotted dress. Rather, the point, as Mankiti would have us put it, is that this individual is failing to display the full complement of excellencies seen as truly definitive of man. This point helps us see how the metaphysical question of when a being counts as a person is tied up on the communalist view with moral questions. One of the most prominent expressions of the moral perspective that comes along with this view is what is sometimes called the philosophy of Ubuntu. This term, which can be translated as something like humanness, evokes both a metaphysical condition and a moral ideal. The term is derived from Zulu and other closely related Southern African languages and is often associated with the phrase Umuntu Ngamuntu Ngabantu, meaning a person is a person through other people. Among those who have promoted the importance of Ubuntu, perhaps the most famous of them all is Bishop Desmond Tutu, the Nobel Peace Prize winner who played a key role in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. According to Tutu, to think in terms of Ubuntu is to recognize one's own humanity as inextricably bound up with the humanity of others. From this point of view, he has spoken of apartheid as a system that dehumanized both the oppressed black South African and the privileged white South African, especially those white South Africans who played active roles in inflicting suffering and harm upon black people. Given the communal ideal of Ubuntu, to fail to recognize someone's humanity through oppressive and brutalizing behavior is to lose your own humanity. Tutu likewise saw peaceful reconciliation in the post-apartheid period as the best way to embody the value of Ubuntu. He has referred to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings of the mid-1990s, at which victims forgave torturers and at which perpetrators of harms confessed and were given amnesty, as the essence of Ubuntu. This undoubtedly controversial example shows that serious questions arise when we try to figure out how to bring a traditional value, like Ubuntu, to bear upon contemporary affairs. Professional philosophers have also weighed in on the meaning of Ubuntu. Notable examples include Mogobe Ramose's book African Philosophy Through Ubuntu and Augustin Schutte's Ubuntu, an ethic for a new South Africa. Another striking attempt to bring African communalism, as exemplified in the notion of Ubuntu, to bear on the contemporary concerns of philosophers, 
would be a series of articles by Thaddeus Metz, an American-born philosopher living and working in South Africa. Metz has attempted to provide a formulation of African ethics that could compete with formulations of other common positions in analytic moral philosophy, like utilitarianism, Kantian ethics of duty, and Aristotelian virtue ethics. Building especially on Tutu, he gives us as a first approximation the following. An action is right just insofar as it produces harmony and reduces discord. An act is wrong to the extent that it fails to develop community. Metz then refines this in order to state more clearly what harmonious communal relationships consist in, ending up with this formulation. An action is right just insofar as it promotes shared identity among people grounded on goodwill. An act is wrong to the extent that it fails to do so and tends to encourage the opposites of division and ill will. Rather than making healthy communal relationships a kind of welcome result or byproduct of good conduct, as would utilitarianism or Kantian moral theory, Metz makes such relationships definitive of ethical goodness. Quasi Wiretu, whom we already mentioned in the first episode in this series, has also taken inspiration from the communalism in traditional African societies in his work on consensus-based democracy. Drawing on historical and anthropological evidence, as well as his own personal knowledge of Ashanti tradition, Wiridu argues that a particularly notable feature of traditional African politics is prolonged discussion aiming to reach common agreement on how to move forward. In the case of the Ashanti, as Wiridu describes it, decision by consensus took place at a number of levels. Each town or village had a council made up of a chief and the heads of the various matrilineal groupings of the community. Often seniority, with the exception of those who were senile, determined the selection of the head of a lineage, so that it was a mere formality to choose this leading figure. But there were also cases in which multiple people who fit the bill were candidates, and the choice between them was made through consultations aiming at consensus. Once chosen, council members again operated by means of consensus, and at two levels. First, in order to properly represent their constituency, lineage heads would need to consult with adult members of the lineage and, for any matter of significance, consensus was the goal of such consultation. Then secondly, decision by consensus was the mode of operation within the council itself. Furthermore, these councils sent representatives to divisional councils, which in turn sent representatives to the National Council of the Ashanti, presided over by the king. At each of these additional levels, councils operated by decision, by consensus. Wiridu sees value in this tradition, because seeking agreement on how to move forward is a way of affirming the right of everyone involved in a decision-making process to be substantively, and not just formally, represented in that process. Making decisions by simple majority rule means that overruled minorities may find that their wills are not in any way reflected in the final decision. By contrast, decision-making by consensus requires the use of dialogue to arrive at the point where all relevant viewpoints are represented in the final decision. Wiridu is careful to say that consensus does not mean total agreement. The spirit of compromise needed to arrive at a consensus in a situation of disagreement generally means that there will be agreement on the way forward without agreement on a number of factual and evaluative judgments. Perhaps you think that giraffes are the most noble animal because of their height, while your cousin thinks it is because of their blue tongue. You are able to reach consensus on the overall conclusion, 
even while disagreeing on the reasoning used to reach it. And something similar could of course happen in political contexts. Wiridu believes that this is not a mere matter of historical interest, but has great practical relevance. He boldly proposes that African countries should consider relinquishing multi-party democracy in favor of no-party democratic systems, in which elected representatives make decisions by consensus. He admits that during the time shortly after independence from colonialism, when one-party rule came to characterize almost all African countries, leaders often justified this rejection of democracy by appealing to the tradition of governance by consensus. Hence, one of the most important critical questions to ask about Wiridu's proposal is how we can be sure it will differ from one-party rule. Nevertheless, especially given the way that ethnic differences in modern African nations can exacerbate problems of majority-minority tensions and lead to competition rather than cooperation between parties, Wiridu's proposal of reviving the traditional communal ideal of consensus through dialogue in a new and modern way is worth considering. It is instructive, by the way, to notice that much of what Wiridu values about the ideal of consensus is its ability to ensure the representation and consideration of minority viewpoints. Often, people fear that a communalist or communitarian view of things precludes paying proper attention to the uniqueness and separateness of individuals, with the result that our rights as individuals may be trampled upon or simply forgotten in a society guided by such ideals. If we see democracy by consensus as a method that grows out of traditional African communalism, it provides a counterexample. If this strikes you as a trifle idealistic, consider how the multi-layered process of the councils described by Wiridu could make this possible. All parties are directly involved at the level of the local council, and their voices are then passed up the chain. Thus, everyone can feel that they contributed to the overall decisions made even at the higher levels. Kwame Jeche has also written quite a bit on this topic and argued that African traditional life does not eliminate the role of the individual by subsuming each person within his or her broader community. In his Essay on African Philosophical Thought, he quotes Akan proverbs pointing to the communalistic nature of the Akan thought, such as this one we mentioned at the end of the previous episode, when a man descends from heaven, he descends into a human society. Then, however, Jeche complicates things by quoting proverbs that veer in a more individualistic direction. One proverb says, The clan is like a cluster of trees, which, when seen from afar, appear huddled together, but which would be seen to stand individually when closely approached. The point here seems to be that we should not let the connected nature of those who share the close ties of clan life mislead us into forgetting about the ways in which they are simultaneously distinct separate individuals. As Jeche puts it, communality does not obliterate individuality. In light of this, it is not surprising that we find Jeche in a later book, Tradition and Modernity, Philosophical Reflections on the African Experience, criticizing Mbiti and Menkiti for what he sees as their exaggerations of how overwhelmingly communalistic traditional African life was. He thinks Mankiti succeeded in outlining certain moral dimensions of traditional African conceptions of personhood, and observes that the Akan, too, used the phrase onye onipa, that is, he is not a person, as a way of describing someone who consistently behaves in a cruel, wicked, selfish, or ungenerous manner. Cheche clarifies the limitations of this phrasing, however. He emphasizes that the person of whom this is said 
loses no rights whatsoever, and remains as deserving of moral concern as any other human being. Most importantly, at least as far as the matter of interpretation goes, he rejects the idea that this moral conception of personhood should be seen as closely linked to rituals of social incorporation, and he treats the idea that one can become more of a person as generally bizarre, but as especially dubious when connected to becoming an elder. After all, J.J. writes, Surely there are many elderly people who are known to be wicked, ungenerous, unsympathetic, whose lives, in short, generally do not reflect any moral maturity or excellence. Beyond the matter of interpretation, though, it is important to Jeche as a matter of philosophical truth that even if we are social by nature, we retain other ethically important characteristics as individuals, such as our capacity to make moral judgments. It is this capacity that allows us to distance ourselves from and critically evaluate shared values and practices that we may have previously taken for granted as part of our immersion in a communal relationship. As we'll see in a later episode, there is an approach to African thought called sage philosophy that places great emphasis on this idea of taking critical distance on the beliefs of one's community. Jeche also argues that we should avoid endorsing conceptions of the relationship between a community and its members that ignore the autonomy of individuals. By this, he does not mean the general self-sufficiency of individuals, but rather the fundamental fact that individuals have wills of their own. Personhood, according to Jeche, should not be understood as being exhaustively defined by the structure of community, even as we recognize that Africans do value community, harmonious relations of cooperation, and a sense of shared fate with each other, and recognize too that such attitudes are worth perpetuating. This is why Jeche rejects what he calls radical or unrestricted communitarianism, and instead endorses what he calls moderate or restricted communitarianism. In his discussion of Akan traditions, in his essay on African philosophical thought, Jeche draws on a celebrated art motif to express the balance between emphasis on community and recognition of individuality in Akan tradition. It is the Siamese crocodile with two heads but a single stomach. The symbol relates to a proverb that speaks of two heads fighting over food even though they have but one stomach. For Jeche, the common stomach represents the common good, the identity of interests among members of the community that makes harmonious cooperation so wise. The two heads, however, signify, for him, acknowledgement of the basic fact of individuality, with the possible divergences of will, interests, tastes, and passion that come with it. These divergences make social conflict possible, and it is the message of this symbol that recognition of the common good can help resolve such conflict. A final question worth raising is this. If we are not ourselves from communalist societies and find something to admire in that way of life, is it something we could simply adopt? Perhaps not, and especially not if we take seriously the idea put forward in work like that of Mankiti. Supposing that communalism involves a radically different attitude towards personhood, to the point that my very identity as a person depends on my place in my community, it may not be something that one can simply decide to embrace just for pragmatic reasons, for instance in hopes of a more consensual political climate, which goodness knows wouldn't go amiss these days. The scholar of African philosophy, Katrin Flickshu, has said that it would require a radical reorientation and self-conception for communalism to become accessible to a Westerner steeped in a rather different metaphysical tradition. 
This statement raises deep questions about what one can and cannot learn from other philosophical traditions. On the one hand, it seems right to say that real philosophical work might be needed to understand and adopt the ideas of another culture. On the other hand, one should not fall into the trap of approaching African ideas, or the ideas of any society, as so inevitably exotic that one can only appreciate them from an anthropological point of view. Just consider how you might react if the point were put the other way around, and someone were to say that they are skeptical whether traditional Africans, raised in communitarian societies, would be capable of appreciating and adopting a more individualistic approach to politics and ethics. The scenario is not merely hypothetical. Under colonialism, Africans were indeed confronted by Western political institutions and had to adapt to them whether they wanted to or not. Nor is the topic we've been discussing this episode even the most challenging one for raising this kind of issue. After all, it's pretty easy to find communalism attractive, in at least some respects, even if one worries that it could have downsides as well. But next time, we'll be looking at an aspect of traditional African societies that Westerners have often treated in an exoticizing way, with little appreciation for what it would be like actually to inhabit the worldview in question, the widespread belief in such things as divination and witchcraft. Why would any philosopher today take such beliefs seriously, seriously enough to bother engaging with them at all? We're no diviners, but we predict that you'll want to find out by joining us for the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 